welcome to the Philadelphia Channel, spotlighting the innovators making meaningful impact throughout the region across a wide range of collaborative and creative fields, including philanthropy, education, technology, family life, social entrepreneurship, advocacy of the arts, and more. Here's your host, Robert Rim. In 2020, an estimated 5.8 million Americans had Alzheimer's, and more than half a million died because of the disease and its devastating complications. 16 million caregivers are responsible for paying as much as half of the $226 billion annual cost of their care. As more people live beyond their 70s and 80s, the number of patients will rise to an estimated 13.8 million by 2025. Part case studies, part meditation on the past, present, and future of the disease, the problem of Alzheimer's both traces the disease from its beginnings to its recognition as a crisis. While an unambiguous account of decades of missed opportunities and our healthcare system's failures to take action, it tells the story of the biomedical breakthroughs that may allow Alzheimer's to finally be prevented and treated by medicine, and also presents an argument for how we can live with dementia, the ways patients can reclaim their autonomy and redefine their sense of self, how families can support their loved ones, and the innovative reforms we can make as a society that would give caregivers and patients really a better quality of life. The book's subtitle is also quite telling, how science, culture, and politics turned a rare disease into a crisis in what we can do about it. Rich in science, history, and characters, the problem of Alzheimer's takes us inside laboratories, patients' homes, caregiver support groups, progressive care communities, and author Jason Carlewish's own practice as co-director of the National Pen Memory Center, where he cares for patients. He's also a professor of medicine, medical ethics and health policy, and neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Jason researches and writes about issues at the intersections of bioethics, aging, and the neurosciences, including articles for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, The Hill, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Jason, welcome to the Philadelphia Channel. Good to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Robert. What first drew you to medicine? I got into medical school when I was in high school. So it was so long ago, it's almost hard to remember the origins of uh, what drew me to it because obviously it predated even being in high school because as I say, I got into a program that admitted me to medical school after I graduated high school. Although I had, I spent three years in college obviously before I went to medical school. But I think it was the combination of sort of the natural sciences as they involve humans and the drama of sickness. I mean, I always had a, interest in science as a child, I, you know, I remember the thrill, the first time I used some sort of magnifying device, microscope device to look at a drop of pond water. And it was truly like just an explorer. I had no idea what I was going to see. I just was looking at a drop of pond water. I remember just being just thrilled at all the little microorganisms I saw there. At that time also, uh, you know, cancer, for example, was much in the news and whatnot. And of course, I was one of those many young people who thought I would become a doctor and quote, find a cure for cancer. So I think it was a combination of that kind of scientific ambition to do something to make the world a better place and putting science into practice. And as vague as it was, I think I probably saw that there was, this is the one place where you can use science and the humanities together in an essential kind of co-mingling as opposed to a sideshow. I love that combination of the sciences and the humanities. It can go so far. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the, when I wrote the book as towards the end, what finally kind of tied it all together was this, it's the title, the last part of the book, which was, you know, a disease of humanity, seeing Alzheimer's disease as a disease of humanity, uh, as a humanitarian problem. To me, that really expresses what is the problem of Alzheimer's is that it's a distinctly human disease that gets at the heart of, particularly in liberal democracy, about what it means to be a human, to be in a, fully a person. Yeah. And we all seemingly know what Alzheimer's is. It's a... Oh, we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I said seemingly. Yeah. That's... <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a devastating loss of memory, leaving the patient in an increasingly deep pool of dementia. So, uh, Jason, what don't we know that would help us better understand uh, to comprehend the totality of this disease? We've made tremendous progress in the last two decades, particularly the last 15 years to even be more precise in understanding the pathophysiology of the disease. That is to say, the disease as it unfolds in a human, a living human. Uh, but there's a lot more progress we need to make. And in fact, the progress that we do make unfolds further complexities of this disease. This is a poignant time to talk about a complex disease of aging when we're in the midst of a pandemic. But I think the juxtaposition is useful just briefly consider that, you know, here we are struggling with a devastating disease in the world caused by a single virus. And, you know, in the time it takes to conceive, gestate and birth a child, we developed a vaccine for that. In contrast, this disease has been around, well, it's been around for as long as humans have been around, but it's been kind of begun to be understood since the early 20th century. But it's only in the last 15, 20 years that we've really made the kind of progress that we have otherwise made in most other diseases, namely being able to see it in life and study it in life. And again, I think the key thing we've found is it's a complicated disease and probably it's really best to think of it more as Alzheimer's diseases in the plural than Alzheimer's disease. And if Alzheimer's had the reach of a pandemic, would we in fact have a cure by now? Well, I, you know, like the funny thing is, I think Alzheimer's disease has had the reach of the pandemic. There you go. So then, so know, the breathtaking demographic numbers you summarized in terms of the number of people with the disease, and for every one of those, at least one other person enmeshed in it as a caregiver. I, in in some sense, I think many people, who, many of my patients, and especially their caregivers, over the last several months, sort of said, "Now everyone knows what it's like living with a bad disease." you know, feeling isolated, et cetera, you know, welcome to my world. I think though, this gets to one of the themes that I sort of find, discovered as I did the research in the book, we've made an enormous number of mistakes with this disease along the way, missed opportunities. It's been the sideshow or casualty of a variety of other larger world events. Although I think finally many countries are beginning to sort of wake up and, and, and get to work on this. But, but the, much of the 20th century is kind of a, a series of missed opportunities. And so many people are diagnosed with Alzheimer's each year. What do you tell patients who receive this, this tragic news? Well, I don't tell them anything in the beginning. I actually ask them questions. So I think what I think we're getting at is, as a clinician, how do I go about going from someone showing up in my office with a cognitive complaint to then telling them that the, based on everything I've learned, that the, the reason why they're having cognitive problems is because they have Alzheimer's disease. When I reach that sort of end part of that patient's particular story, I actually start with a lot of questions is, well, like, let's re-review why you're here and what do you think is the cause of your problem? What do you think it might be uh, explain why you're having memory problems? I try to have them help me understand what they do know and what they don't know about what's wrong with them and their desire to know what's wrong with them and how much they know about 
Alzheimer's disease, how much they know about dementia. So I can kind of follow their understanding and their appreciation of what's wrong so that I give them a diagnosis that makes sense to them. And as importantly, what do you say to the family members who will have the often overwhelming challenge of taking care of them? Yeah, well, I mean, there's certainly a core set of things I teach people, oftentimes specific, obviously, to the stage of the disease. But if there's one key message I do give after I've made a diagnosis and and had those first clinical meetings is you didn't learn algebra in one class. You know, you didn't learn math in one course. It took a, a bit of time. People who learn the diagnosis of diabetes don't that very day learn all the things about diet, exercise, et cetera, to be able to live well with diabetes. And, and that's the same thing, I think, with this disease, as it is with any chronic disease, that it's something that you have to learn about, come to terms with. And my mission is I'm going to teach you now up front some of the key things that you need to know, number one. And number two, over time, you'll learn more. And here's places where you can go off as well to learn more. And one of the things that our center is very proud about is we have a very robust social work team that provides patients and families education, training to learn how to live with their disease as they're living it. For those experiencing memory lapses, what should they do? If someone's having cognitive problems, memory lapses that either they or other people are noticing, particularly if they're causing even inefficiencies in doing daily activities, inefficiencies, it's just not going as well as it used to. Those need to be looked into and those need to be checked out by a physician. And what are the current treatment options for those afflicted? Right now, I can write some prescriptions for Food and Drug Administration approved medications that have been shown to improve some of the symptoms of the disease. People perform better on memory tests compared to people who don't take the drugs, and those are available. Having said that, there hasn't been a new FDA approved drug for this uh, disease in about 15 years, although the FDA is right now considering a very exciting new drug. But the other treatments that are available are not pills, but interventions in behavior, in the environment, and daily life that can really improve the well-being and quality of life of the person living with the disease, as well as the people who live with and care for them. Those are more frustrating. I, I can write a script for the medications and be confident that Medicare Part D or the supplemental plan will pay for them. Unfortunately, even today in America, I can't write a prescription for family counseling and education with any confidence that either they can get it or that it will be paid for. Now, if they come to the memory center, I know they'll get it. And the reason why it will be paid for is because a donor gave us a tremendously large gift that pays for that. But in the average busy, hardworking clinical practice, being able to provide the kind of education and training and counseling that patients and family members need practices simply aren't able to provide that, which is an absolute tragedy. It, it really is. And for our audience, what you mentioned about food uh, certainly resonates. So, so tell us, what kind of foods, in fact, help even a little bit against Alzheimer's? No, you're talking to a physician. So I'm going to say we don't have a lot of good data that say that this particular diet reduces your risk of or otherwise changes the natural history of Alzheimer's disease. Having said that, we have very good data about lifestyles, including diet, that reduce the risk of developing dementia. And dementia just simply describes disabling cognitive impairments 
caused by a disease, and one of those diseases is Alzheimer's. So what we know, and, and from now four decades of research from a, a variety of very large ongoing studies, is that the risk of developing dementia has been declining. There's still a lot of people with dementia. There just aren't as many as we thought there were going to be. And when we look at why there are, that risk has dropped, we find a couple of consistent findings. And one of them is reductions in and improvements in cardiovascular disease. And one of the mechanisms there is dietary modifications, both to reduce and otherwise alter cholesterol levels, as well as um, uh, blood pressure, namely through low salt uh, diets. So it's a long rambly answer to say, there's good evidence that a heart healthy diet a diet that has been shown to be healthy for the heart is also healthy for the brain in reducing the risk of developing dementia. Listeners who want to learn more about how can I live a life that's brain healthy um, have two choices. They can go on the internet and spend the next five years reading a lot of stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and pay a lot of money for a lot of things that they should just as well use the money to you know, go out to dinner once we can go back out to dinner again. Or they can go on the internet and go to the AARP's Global Council on Brain Health. And it's a really well done summary of what's known about a variety of behaviors and lifestyles that promote brain health, maintain brain health. It's a wonderful synthesis of the evidence. And it's presented for the lay non-professional reader as well. So the Global Council on Brain Health by AARP. So it's fair to say that a diet high in vegetables, fruit, low saturated fat, low sugar, low sodium, all of these things have a, a tangibly positive influence on perhaps you're avoiding Alzheimer's or at least minimizing. Yeah, it keeps the brain healthy. And the data tend to say that it, the healthier the brain is, that is to say the healthier the neurons are, the more they seem to be able to withstand the pathologies that can develop there. So yeah, that's, that's a very pithy summary. And what's the latest thinking as to what causes Alzheimer's? There are two stereotypical pathologies that a neuropathologist will see in an autopsy of someone who had dementia that fit the story of Alzheimer's disease. They'll see between the neurons clumps of a, a very dense protein, and uh, they'll see within the, some of the neurons tangled up bits of a protein. and and. Those proteins have been identified. The, the, the clumps are, are a protein called amyloid, which is normally soluble. It's not in clumps, but something happens in Alzheimer's to make it get clumpy. Mm -hmm. And the protein that's tangled up inside the neurons is a protein that normally exists in neurons called tau, uh, T-A-U. And um, something causes tau to be uh, hyperphosphorylated, to use a word, to tangle up. And we know a lot about the genes that seem to be associated with amyloid clumping and tau tangling. We know a lot about the cascade of events that lead to that. The notion that there's, quote, a cause is, again, back to the COVID, you know, we don't have the virus or whatnot that causes it. It's probably a multifactorial set of events that probably vary across humans, depending on age, genetics, lifestyle. The bottom line is these tangles of tau and plaques of amyloid contribute to the death of neurons. As neurons die, obviously, brain function declines. Yeah, and you mentioned COVID. As difficult as Alzheimer's is, it's made incalculably more difficult in the time of COVID-19, especially yeah. for hospitalized patients. Uh, you actually wrote about this on statnews.com. Can you shed some light on why 
certain COVID restrictions should be altered for Alzheimer's patients? When you've got a person living with Alzheimer's disease, you have another person living with Alzheimer's disease. Or as a caregiver of one of my patients once said, he kind of had this revelation at the, at the office visit. He, he actually sort of grabbed his chest and he said, I have Alzheimer's disease. And what he was getting at is I'm so enmeshed in my wife's life, taking care of her, telling you what's wrong with her rather than her telling you what's wrong with her because of the trouble she has with awareness that essentially he almost has Alzheimer's. It was, a, it was a, one of those moments in practice where, you know, it's like that made a lot of sense and really helps me understand the disease. So the, the patient is so enmeshed in the life of other people to accommodate their cognitive disabilities that if you take away those people, the patients don't do well. And, and so what COVID unfortunately caused was a vast, awful natural experiment. And what if you take away caregivers or what if you reduce access to caregivers? And what we saw was sadly what happens, which is persons living with dementia, particularly people who are in long-term care residential settings, don't do as well. They just don't have enough people caring for them and therefore they lose weight develop more cognitive problems, develop agitation, et cetera. And in the hospital setting, we saw that one of the most devastating consequences of uh, acute illness in persons with dementia occurs and is destructive, namely delirium, an acute confusional state on top of the chronic cognitive disorder seen in, in dementia. So delirium became a real problem. One reason why is patients no longer had uh, family members in the hospital room with them who could help them make sense of what was going on and understand them and, and, and help to care for them. And so, so COVID really exposed, sadly, the importance of care and caregiving for persons living with dementia. Maybe one of my thin hopes is on the other side of the pandemic, we might as a country sort of revisit that and learn from that and better support America's caregivers. You wrote that delirium is to Alzheimer's disease as pain is to cancer. Yeah. Tell us more about what that involves. And can delirium be prevented for patients with this disease? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the chapters in the book, uh, The Problem of Alzheimer's, is a chapter about delirium, the history of delirium. And I was very keen to make sure I told that story because as you quoted me, I equate delirium to Alzheimer's as people equate pain to cancer. So lots of diseases cause pain, and yet there's something about cancer and pain that's uniquely, unfortunately, linked. Lots of diseases and illnesses can cause a vulnerable brain to develop an acute confusional state called delirium. But for persons living with Alzheimer's disease, their brains are uniquely vulnerable to developing this acute confusional state. So a simple infection, which in an otherwise healthy person will cause them to perhaps feel a little tired, et cetera, in a person living with Alzheimer's disease can precipitate a, a, a marked change in their cognitive abilities. They can become very lethargic and or very agitated. That's what delirium is. And I, I, in the book, I tell the story of the scientist, and she is a, one scientist who really just dedicated her career to figuring out what is this thing called delirium, describing it, which is the first step of science, and then to identifying what risk factors make someone likely to develop it. And then, which is the final task of science, or to paraphrase Karl Marx, it's all very well to describe the world. The point is to change it. Um, she tested interventions to try and reduce the risk of developing delirium. And her work did show that there are things that a healthcare system can do 
that make a person less likely if they become admitted to a hospital to develop delirium. Of course, the struggle has been to get healthcare systems to do those things because there isn't a robust business model for things like educate the staff not to yell and scream at night in the hallways, you know, turn down the lights. How about rooms that are private rooms, not semi-private rooms where you have to listen to someone else's TV at three in the morning? How about allow family members to be present at the bedside to be able to assist with care? Very seemingly simple things, and yet, if not done, they cause patients to develop delirium. And are hospitals and centers generally receptive to these kinds of seemingly straightforward changes to make to enhance the experience? Yeah, in the book, I narrate the story of at least one hospital's awakening, if you will. Like I actually titled the chapter Discernment, Process of Self-Reflection. And it's an interesting story because it's a hospital that is a very, very good hospital, but you know, it was a small hospital in the city of Rochester where things that were going bad there, and I think any reasonable person would have said, well, that's pretty typical. Old people come in with broken hips and they get really delirious and they get their hip repair, but then things go really bad. Some die, some stay for a long time. Eventually they go back to the nursing home and they're far worse than they were and many die six, nine months later. Anyway, the physicians at this hospital said, "You know, we gotta do better. And they set about, this is, we're talking turn of the 21st century, so about 15, 20 years ago. And they really reflected over what are we doing here when an older adult comes into the emergency room with a, with a broken hip and realized there were all these just missteps and miscoordinations of care. And they changed the system. And the result was they dramatically dropped the complication rates such as delirium from hip fracture, shortened the length of stay, improved the likelihood that people would leave in reasonably good health, et cetera. So it was really a, an impressive improvement in um, the quality of care, which required them to discern that they could do things better. Slowly, that approach to care has begun to spread across healthcare systems. Really, the, the problem is, is that you needed a business model to do these things. A, a disease in America doesn't fully exist until it has a robust business model, for, unfortunately, meaning someone's going to make money off of this. And providing good care for older adults with Alzheimer's disease has never had a good business model. This hospital that I described in the book was about ready to go bankrupt so they could kind of do anything. <laughs> so it was sort of like, what do we have to lose, you know? Um, and, and, and slowly, though, healthcare systems have woken up to this. Part of it is because Medicare has woken up to it and really kind of changing how it's reimbursing care and creating incentives, frankly, to provide uh, coordinated care that reduces the risks of things like de delirium, that improves the quality of hip fracture care. Hip fracture, of course, not being unique to people with Alzheimer's, but certainly, again, one of the more common complications in persons living with dementia caused by Alzheimer's. Ronald Reagan, for example, fell and fractured his hip in the course of his Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And if you were advising the newly minted Biden administration, you just mentioned Reagan, uh, how would you want them to approach the problem of Alzheimer's? President Biden and his team have a couple of great opportunities. Uh, fortunately, I think President, you know, when I looked at his website when he was running for president, he had a whole section on improving care, addressing America's caregiving needs. But I think, you know, you could think of a couple things. Number one, President Biden needs to really roll out a national network of comprehensive uh, memory centers. Certainly, these are needed to provide state of the art diagnostics and treatments, but really, they're also needed to be hubs for the spokes of training 
for the practices and healthcare practitioners throughout the nation. So imagine just like Carnegie built libraries across America, imagine a national network of memory centers. We have it for cancer centers. We do. We have cancer centers all across America. We could do that for memory centers. We need to invest in the training of a workforce. Much of America's medical education is paid for by America, meaning the residency programs enjoy a Medicare supplement to provide for the salaries of the residents. That's a good thing. I have no problem with that. But let, could we tinker with that a bit to incentivize people to pursue some of the professions that are needed to improve the quality of care for persons living with dementia? Also, uh, nursing schools and other professional schools. It's time for the Biden administration to lead a national effort to promote a real conversation about providing comprehensive long-term care services and supports, both in the community as well as in residential settings. We're the, the only developed country in the world that has no organized system of social insurance for long-term care services and support for Americans. It's a simply, it's a shameful gap that basically the the, the cost of long-term care services and supports is borne by America's families figuring it out on their own, which means it's borne by America's women. So it's time to really finally take on a comprehensive long-term care services and support system. The Biden administration should incentivize America's hospitals as already is happening, as I mentioned, through Medicare and Center for Medicare Services to improve the quality of care in healthcare systems for older adults living with dementia through things like coordinated care and uh, geriatric surgery programs. And then finally, you know, you know, we always go back to it, although it's getting a little old, but we did put someone on the moon, you know, um, so we're pretty good at, as a nation, putting technology together and doing it. So remember, that was that was not a private enterprise effort. Let's put a man on the moon. That's what we said, you know. Oh, yeah. Say. And it blanketed the country in news for, how, you know, for endless uh, cycles. Yeah. But, but the point is, is that our public sector is pretty good when we're motivated to do technological breakthroughs, like putting a person on the moon. So what's my point? There's a host of technological innovations that could be done to improve both the detection of diagnosis of cognitive impairment, as well as providing care to persons living with cognitive impairment, devices to monitor, detect, and provide support. And in, in the book, I have a whole section about the uh, promise of technology to improve the quality of detection and the quality of life. So let's, as a nation, invest in that technological infrastructure and also the changes in the regulatory infrastructure that are needed to both detect and provide care for our older adults. And speaking of our most recent election, you've also done a tremendous amount of work assuring people with dementia that they still have the opportunity to vote. So how is this playing out? We got interested in this work back in the 2000 election when it all focused on Florida and just a few hundred votes. And fast forward to now, in between our group really, I think, uh, along with many others, really woke our democracy to the fact that cognitively disabled and otherwise disabled older adults' right to vote is threatened. If you live in a community residential setting, we found, for example, that you were often reliant on, you know, well-meaning but very uh, distracted and unskilled staff to make sure you had your right to vote respected in terms of getting registered and having access to the polls. Part of our work, for example, discovered that in some countries, bringing the voting booth to a residential facility was the norm so that residents had easy access to voting. For example, the case in, in Australia. And so there's a lot more work to be done in this space, but 
we made great progress in cooperation with the American Bar Association and other groups to raise awareness about and promote concrete interventions like mobile polling to give older adults access to their right to vote. And with the 55th Super Bowl soon at hand, I, I began to wonder how directly concussions contribute to dementia and if there's a correlation between football and Alzheimer's. There's a strong correlation between repeated head injury and developing later life cognitive impairment through a disease process that is distinctly different than the disease process of Alzheimer's. It's called descriptively chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the uh, autopsy studies as well as imaging studies show that clearly what's going on there is very different than what goes on in Alzheimer's, although the end result in terms of what the patient experiences often is very similar in terms of the kinds of cognitive problems and whatnot, as well as psychiatric problems. But I think CTE, as it's abbreviated, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is a good example in terms of raising awareness that there are many sad routes towards having impaired cognition, developing dementia. One of them is the disease called Alzheimer's. Uh, repeated head injury is another. So is Lewy body disease, which Robin Williams, the comedian, had. So yeah. is frontal temporal lobar degeneration. So is Parkinson's disease and onward. So there's a variety of different diseases that can affect brain health by causing dementia. I, I think you've brought up a good point though with CTE because chronic repeated head injuries are not acts of nature. <laughs> They're events done willfully. And I think that we're in for a reckoning as a country around brain health and promoting sports that have people bash their brains together. And I will predict that universities whose job is to grow up and complete the education of America's minds ought to have a real conversation about why are we also promoting sports that can damage those minds. And Jason, in the next five to 10 years, what should we expect in the Alzheimer's space? Is, is this a disease where we, we actually may expect a cure or are treatment and say therapeutic options more realistic? I think that treatment and therapeutic options are, are realistic in the next five years. I do not think a cure is realistic. I think a cure for Alzheimer's is like a cure for cancer. We've talked about that for 40, 50 years. We have made tremendous progress in the treatment of cancer, and yet hundreds of thousands of people still die every year of cancer. So I think that's the story. That will be the story for Alzheimer's. I predict that within about five, certainly 10 years, there will be some treatments that we have good evidence, slow the likelihood you develop cognitive impairment and slow the progress of further disabling cognitive impairments. Maybe there'll be some forms of the disease that actually are essentially halted by these treatments. But I think the notion that we're going to drug our way out of this complicated problem with a cure, all most reasonable experts will say, no, that's just not sort of the, what the disease is telling us. Again, back to COVID, the vaccines very well will make this COVID a thing of the past. Uh, we'll see. That's a reasonable hope. I, I think saying to people, we're going to quote, cure this disease is I think like trying to plan one's retirement by buying lottery tickets. You might win and, yeah. and really, you know, have a great retirement. But I think most reasonable people would not simply buy lottery tickets as their way to plan retirement. Understood. Well, awareness, delirium, therapeutic options, positive societal change. On these living notes, listeners can find out more online at penmemorycenter.org. 
and throughout a wide range of social media and publications. Jason, all the best to you and the entire team with your vital work that directly impacts countless people. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Access, stream, and download the Philadelphia Channel bi-weekly, part of the International Innovate podcast series on PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and online at innovatepodcast.org. On behalf of the Philadelphia Channel team and our collaborators, good to have you join us.